Hello and welcome back to Goodness Love Alive. Today we're talking to Dr. Dan Kalish, who is going to talk to us all about fatigue and how to improve the mitochondria. Let's dive in. All right, Dr. Dan Kalish, we are so happy to have you on the call today. Um, We know every time we talk to you, uh, it's always a journey of self-discovery in so many different ways, both in health and spirituality. Um, You run a thriving practice, you're an author, um, and you're into so many different things, which makes you such an intriguing person to talk to. But today we're specifically going to talk about mitochondria and related diseases and treatments for people. So Fatigue. Yeah. These are massive things that are almost like epidemic proportions at the moment. I find it so interesting. Obviously, we all learn about the mitochondria in high school, but uh, life goes on and we become adults and we're working hard and we get all tired and tired and tired. We might go to the doctors and they're never going to talk to us. Well, it's very, I feel like it's very unlikely that they would discuss mitochondria with their patients or at least in a conventional sense. Why do you think that is? I, why do you think that mitochondria isn't, spoken about enough in general health? Yeah, you know, it's a little, well, maybe it's surprising, maybe it's not. I guess the it, most of the time when something gets ignored in conventional medicine, it's because of the potential solutions. You know what I mean? So like if the solution is a drug, a prescription drug, then usually there's, you know, medical education surrounding that and the word gets out pretty quickly. Within a generation or so, doctors figure out how to use these drugs. But with the mitochondria, they've been working hard on this, but no one really has a drug that fixes mitochondrial function. And so until there is one, it's probably just going to be one of those subjects that is left alone. And by the way, there are many massive corporations that are studying mitochondria right now to try to find a drug to manipulate them. And that's sort of seen as the fountain of youth, right? This is the sort of premier anti-aging area of research right now. Because if we can figure out how to keep mitochondria working perfectly, you know, human lifespan could be 150 years or 200 years or whatever they're dreaming about. So there is a lot of research money going into trying to figure out how mitochondria work, but it's really exclusively focused on what drug could we potentially develop that would make these little guys work forever instead of just giving up after 100 years, right? So there's a little spin, a sort of circle of spinning energy that we make inside the cells that's called the citric acid cycle. But basically, it's a very complicated thing. But we take protein, fat, and carb, and we need to turn that food into energy somehow. And so these nutrients, protein, fat, and carb, go into the mitochondria or near the mitochondria in the cells. And the mitochondria grab them and spin them around this wheel where they change and transform the food into physical energy. So like the reason that I can move my hand now is because I ate something earlier today and my mitochondria are turning that food or fuel into an energy supply that I can then use. And so it's a very physical process, right? Um, I mean, it's also a physical process for your heart to pump and for your, not just for your muscles to work, but your, you know, a lot of things in the body, just everything in the body really requires on this energy, requires this energy source to function properly. But the most obvious way people feel the problem with mitochondria is that their metabolism is shut down, so they're gaining weight, or they're just physically exhausted all the time, don't feel like exercising um, because they don't, they just literally can't make the energy. And you can't um, psychologically boost yourself into doing it, right? It's either there or it's not there. It's like gasoline in a car. If you're, you're just sitting there thinking after you ran out of gas that you want to have more gas, it's not going to come back. 
Um, it's very much like that with mitochondria. People may want to be more physically active, but they literally can't do it because they don't have the cellular energy to get up and move around. And so the solutions for fixing mitochondria involve eliminating environmental toxins, which is not that interesting to conventional doctors, and um, nutrients. You know, the three main nutrients are CoQ10, magnesium, and oxygen. And there's just not a lot of interest in those as, you know, in the conventional medical community as potential solutions for anything. Mm -hmm. I suppose diagnosing air isn't that sexy. When you're, yeah, when like you're I think you need more oxygen. That's <laughs> so uh, talk me through it. So how common do you think mitochondrial dysfunction is for people? Like say you have someone walking into your, well, I know you practice telehealth, so maybe they're not um, in, physically walk, in. walking in, yeah. but um, they're, uh, they're virtually walking into your office. Um, how many people, say you have 10 patients that have fatigue, how many of them do you think is actually mitochondrial uh, dysfunction at their core? At a guess. If you, if you take into, well, I'm just thinking, if you take into account all the different ways that the mitochondria can go bad, because there's at least two or three different things that can happen to mitochondria. If you include all of those, it's probably 80%. Wow. Uh, most. Uh -huh. Yeah. And then different to different degrees of severity, not always the main problem, but, you know, depending on the, sometimes it's the main problem, sometimes not. But so, yeah, I would say at least 80% have okay, some so level of problem there. Coming from someone that's obviously maybe watching this and they're, they're experiencing um, unexplained fatigue, like maybe they've gone to so many doctors, um, you know, the doctor maybe thought it was their thyroid, but the thyroid apparently looked okay. That can be a really common thing. Why... Is there an unusual connection between the thyroid and mitochondrial dysfunction? Yeah, so the thyroid is interesting. So the thyroid obviously makes hormones. And when you look in any medical text and you say, what does the thyroid do? It controls basal metabolic rate, right? It controls, it regulates your metabolism, which means that um, if your thyroid is not working well, you're going to gain weight. You can start to lose hair, you can start to have your skin doesn't look very good, people get really, really tired, obviously. But the way that the thyroid actually regulates metabolism, what it's regulating are the mitochondria themselves. So if you have mitochondrial dysfunction, even if you're put on the right type and right dose of thyroid medication, you're not going to get a very complete response because the way that the, the way the thyroid hormones are supposed to execute their work, you know, the workers out there, the mitochondria are, are not functioning properly. That's something we need to pay attention to then. Um, so you said toxicity is the major issue for mitochondrial dysfunction. How, why are um, mitochondria so susceptible or sensitive to toxicity? Yeah, I mean, I would, I would almost say it's a design flaw, but, you know, I don't, I don't think – the human body design team wasn't really anticipating that human beings would develop tens of thousands of chemicals and poison the entire planet with highly toxic heavy metals. So I think that, you know, in the old days, when we were developing, what would you get? Maybe you get a poison dart in your butt once in a while from the tribe across the river, right? Or you eat a toxic mushroom but then you're dead and you probably everyone in your tribe would know, oh, don't eat those mushrooms anymore. So the idea of environmental toxins, I think, is relatively new. Um, and the mitochondria are kind of a p perfect and beautiful structure, but they're just not well prepared for this particular type of insult. You know, they're just not. Um, so in a way, you could say it's a design flaw, but then in a way, you could say it's a maybe it's a 
it's a product of of our, of our modern life, you know, that really wasn't anticipated for and wasn't really part of human culture until quite recently, you know. Mm, fair call. So what happens to the mitochondria when they are exposed to this level of toxicity? Yeah, so there's this mechanism we call oxidative stress or oxidation, right? Which is like just when you um, you see a nail rusting and it's sort of falling apart. If you cut an apple in half and it starts to turn brown. So the mitochondria are oxidized or physically damaged. And it looks very much like if you imagine, um, I don't know if you're watching like a World War II movie and you see a tank and it's got a whole bunch of holes shot through it, you know, it, the mitochondria become physically damaged by oxidative stress. It's almost like a missile going through into a tank or something like, like that. And then they don't work very well, obviously, because they're damaged. And then what's even more interesting is that in the last 10 years or so, it's been discovered that um, and there, there's this very uh, intensive research projects all around this to look at mitochondrial populations, like how many of them a- actually are there, right? Because the previous work that we've been doing, you know, my teachers maybe going back to the 70s and 80s, is in looking at mitochondria that aren't working very well. They're damaged, like like a vehicle with a bunch of holes shot through it. But now they're finding out that there's some people where the mitochondrial populations are simply not there. The numbers aren't there in the amount that they should be, and that's really profound. That's like the difference between you know a couple of bullet holes shot into your car, and then the car just not being there, just physically not being there. Right? It's a really big deal, and they call that mitochondrial retraction. Um, that's the prof- that's the more profound levels of chronic fatigue and really you know long-standing depression and uh, inability to lose weight or exercise, you know, the deeper cases that have been that way for much longer um, literally don't have the mitochondria. So you can't just take a bunch of B vitamins and pep them up because they're physically not there. Uh, And so we work with this new concept called mTOR. Have you guys heard of mTOR? Has that come up in the show? Uh, A little, a little bit. bit. Mammalian target of rapamycin, kind of a weird name. Of all things, they discovered this rapamycin on the Easter Islands. It's like this sci-fi kind of movie story. But anyways, um, mTOR stimulates things to grow in the human body. And so there's a lot of research now on slowing down mTOR because if it's accelerated, people can be at risk of cancer, having cancer, right? But if mTOR is slowed down too much, then the mitochondrial populations start to fail. And so there's a way that you can actually, these treatments we, we've developed now in the last 10 years to stimulate the regrowth, or they call it biogenesis of mitochondria, so they can literally physically be rebuilt again and come back using these special free-form amino acid products. And um, it's pretty cool. You can actually watch this happen in real time on the labs because you can see the way of, when you measure the lab, when you do these tests, there's ways you can see if there are enough mitochondria present or not. And then as they come back online, you can see their populations coming back. And, of course, people feel the difference as well. Um, That's so interesting. Yeah, it's pretty cool. What is the actual connection to Easter Island, just out of curiosity? (laughs) It's where these scientists found the stuff. Rapamycin, they just discovered it. That's physically where they found it. What was it on just on the plant? Plant. Ah. Interesting. Isn't that crazy? Was it like an accidental discovery or is it yeah, like... Yeah, totally. Yeah, it was just one of these freak things. We're like, what does this do, you know? They're like, oh, <laughs> this is a 
you know, it turns out that because rapamycin changes mTOR, right? And they, they didn't even really know that, M, know that mTOR existed until they found this way of modifying it. And so, okay, of course, it's always one of those things where the conventional doctors do one thing and then the alternative doctors do the exact opposite thing. <laughs> so they're trying to develop drugs that work to mess with mTOR. And we're trying to get mTOR to work properly. It's kind That's of ironic. That's so interesting. So you're referring to like these populations. Can, like, can you just like quickly like explain like so? There's multiple variants of mitochondria. Is what you're saying? Is that how how would you explain? Yeah, yeah. It to so the like, it's like a typical muscle cell has like ten thousand mitochondria in the one little cell. Right. So the more energy that the cell needs to make, obviously muscle cells need to do make a lot of energy. The heart cells have really high concentrations of mitochondria. So your body just packs a ton of these mitochondria into areas, into cells where you need to do a lot of stuff that are very physically active. Um, and then other cells, you know, there's a ton of mito. Well, I think I was just reading this the other day. So if you look at all the energy production throughout the body, it's around 20% in the brain, 20%. Um, in the liver, and around 20% in the cardiovascular system. So those are the areas that have the highest need for energy. And then obviously there's you know another 40% or so sort of distributed throughout your body for different processes. Um, and the single most energy intensive thing that human beings do, and this is like a quiz question that I was asked and I got it wrong, so I really remember the answer now <laughs> because it was embarrassing. What's the single most in- energy intensive thing that humans do? And it's one of those you wouldn't ever think of it. It's um, we pump against gradients, right? So like if you need to get a brain chemical into an area, you might have to pump it over there. Or, you know, certain things diffuse in the body naturally, but then other things we have to push around. And so most of this ATP or energy is being used up and just pushing things around at a molecular level. It's kind of strange. But in the areas of the brain, the liver, uh, and the cardiovascular system. Those are kind of like the key components for where these mitochondria are actually doing stuff. So Interesting. let's just like start with the brain because I think that's, um, we've discussed this very previously in the sense that people might be, have depression and, and suspect maybe, oh no, it's a neurotransmitter issue, but not be thinking that it's actually a mitochondrial issue. Can you explain how that could, um, how that process works? Yeah. So there's so it takes so many years to figure this stuff out, you guys. So like in my first 20 years, I'm thinking neurotransmitters. It take it took 12 years just to learn how to fix neurotransmitters. So you're kind of thinking that's the most important part of the brain, but that is minor because the actual mitochondrial role in the brain. Think of it this way: like it's like the neurotransmitters are sending signals around, right? But there would be no electrical grid. There would be no network. There would be nothing to send signals to if, unless the mitochondria are present and working properly. So if you had perfect neurotransmitter production and the mitochondria weren't there, it'd be like having perfect electrical wires in a home and no power. Right? It'd be like, okay, well, that looks really great, but I can't turn the lights on or start my stereo or something. That's how – So. The reason why mitochondria have gotten overlooked, I think, is because they're so fundamental and so important and so basic that we just kind of take it for granted, you know? And aren't human beings like that in general in our lives, you know? Well, we'd like the people that are the most important to us are the ones we take for granted the most, you know? Right? It's just how we are. So I think that's, that um, mental process has kind of been, ex- you know, 
infused medicine here. Um, because when you actually start to think about it logically, I mean, if you didn't have the energy from mitochondria, you would be dead before you could even hit the floor. You wouldn't, it wouldn't even be, it'd be faster than a gunshot wound, right? Your entire body would just cease to do anything instantly. Um, it's very primary and very basic process, but we just take it for granted. And we take it for granted that it's working properly, you know, and in so many cases it's not. Um, so, yeah, so that what would the net result of that would be that you get a partial response to a neurotransmitter program, but you still have some deep underlying depression or anxiety that's just really not vanquished, you know, it's just better, but not really gone. <sighs> So fascinating. Uh, so how would someone know if they had uh, a lack of mitochondria or just unhealthy uh, or damaged mitochondria? Yeah, that's kind of a technical technical lab question, but can I tell you because it's kind of interesting. So um, when we, we test these organic acids and we're looking at the byproducts of the mitochondria, so when they're making energy, they're spitting out all these chemicals. It's just like if you had a fire in your fireplace with real wood and it's burning, but it's throwing off sparks every once in a while, right? And so we can measure those sparks. And if there's a ton of them, then you know that it's not burning very well. The so there's a ton of these things spewing off on the lab test. Then you know, okay, that mitochondria is working, but not that great. It would be similar with a fire, right? If you're spewing pieces everywhere, you'd be like, oh, I want to get it burning better. And you would blow on it or something or make it better. So we see very high levels of organic acids when they're not working well. And then for 30 years, that's pretty much all that anyone looked at. And then about 10 or 12 years ago, this mTOR thing came into fashion, and people started to realize, wait a minute, there can be an understimulation of these systems as well. And that's when it started to be noticed that in a mitochondrial deficit situation, there's not enough of them. These markers that we're used to seeing super, super high are in the exact opposite configuration. They're extraordinarily low showing a lack of mitochondrial populations. So, that's new. That's all pretty new stuff. Wow. What does that look like on an actual lab test? So if someone has actually had this tested, what would you be looking for specifically? And what is the lab test that they'd be getting done? Yeah, so this is all done through organic acids. And this is the tricky part, is that when the organic acids tests were first set up in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, everything, this is true for conventional medicine and integrative medicine, they were only looking for high levels of organic acids. In conventional medicine, they use these organic acids tests to look for genetic disorders in, in babies, right? So anyways, that's been done for a really long time. And there's extraordinarily high levels are shown when there's mitochondrial disorders. And this happens in newborn babies, too. Um, that have genetic disorders. And so nobody really even thought about what does it mean when it's low. It's kind of like low blood pressure. You know, do people have take drugs for low blood pressure? Not really. Or low cholesterol. You know, usually it's just not really considered an issue. And then this mTOR thing was discovered. And then people started to realize, wait a minute, there can be an underactivity across the board here. And then we started to realize, gosh, when these very, very low markers that we thought were normal or present, if we give people extremely large dosages of amino acids, mTOR picks up and the mitochondria come back online. That's how it was all discovered. It was through the mechanism of mTOR. And then the solution is pretty straightforward. You get these very specialized high dosages of amino acids that flood the system and get the mitochondria to start to grow again properly. 
Wow. Okay. So there's that facet. And then, so with the toxicity, uh, is it, when you're thinking about toxicity and mitochondrial dysfunction, uh, obviously we want to reduce the amount of exposure that we have, but does your brain, do you think much about detox or does that make a difference or what are your thoughts on that? Yeah. So, I mean, you obviously try to encourage a person to not retoxify themselves mm-hmm. with, I don't know, anything with alcohol, cigarettes, whatever, lipstick that has lead in it or whatever it is that, you know, people are putting on or in their bodies that's pretty dangerous. And then um, get all the toxins out. Like that has to happen as part of this whole program. So you have to find chemicals or heavy metals and physically remove them from the body. Otherwise, this whole damage process will just keep going. Okay, great. And so before you mentioned uh, CoQ10, uh, what was it? Magnesium, Magnesium. and oxygen. Uh, could you talk us through CoQ10? Uh, I think a few, I think our viewers would know, uh, would have heard of that by now, but maybe what is it and why is it so effective for mitochondria? Yeah, so it's a very or potent essential. antioxidant. You know, you can buy it as a supplement. It's a little expensive. I don't know why it's so expensive, but it's kind of expensive to get the good stuff. And it's the very last step in the mitochondrial production of energy. So like all these other million things happen just right, CoQ10 is a final determiner of whether you're going to make energy or not. And it's also very famously lowered, CoQ10 is, in people who take statin medications. So that is amazing, isn't it? That we're giving people the you know, by the millions, this, these drugs that specifically target and damage the mitochondria. It's kind of phenomenal. So if you're on a statin, you need to take CoQ10. Um, and it it also has a lot of, well, they call it ubiquinol because it's, it does ubiquitous, right? It does a lot of different other things as well. It's a really powerful antioxidant. But um, I think it's probably the most essential role in the human body is as that final arbiter of whether you're going to make energy or not. Great. And magnesium. Uh, I think magnesium deficiency is one of the most common uh, mineral deficiencies. Is that right? It is because people don't or won't eat green leafy vegetables. Like how hard is that? Swiss chard, kale, collard greens. If everybody ate, and there's actually studies on this. If you eat Swiss chard, kale, or collard greens five times a day, you basically could eliminate like probably half of the world's diseases. <laughs> you know, it's it's that simple, right? Because they're so full of magnesium. No one eats those foods anymore. But anyways, um, until that changes, magnesium is kind of the opposite. Whereas CoQ10 is in, important for this one step, and if it's not there, it won't happen. Magnesium is involved in every single step of energy production. And usually people think of magnesium as it relaxes you, take it at night and go to sleep. But it's also essential for producing energy as well as for helping to relax us, does both. And I guess uh, high stressful situations like the pandemic and everything we're going through at the moment, people tend to lose a lot of magnesium. Can you explain how that process happens? Yeah, when we're stressed, we burn through minerals, magnesium and calcium, it's not a good thing. And that, that goes back to what we maybe talked about in, in, in other talks that you've interviewed people with, uh, the adrenal hormones. And when you get this surge of adrenaline and cortisol, these hormones um, act in a way to basically chew up your um, magnesium and calcium. The way to think about it, I think the easy way to think about it is, you know, steroid medications. Um, when you take a steroid, sometimes you have to. Um, people use them for asthma or um, sometimes people take steroids for a joint 
pain problem, you know, you get an injection of steroid. Uh, when you, the reason why you can't do like a steroid injection every day is because eventually they start to whittle away your bone, right? Because the steroids trigger a breakdown of uh, the minerals like calcium and magnesium and bone. So cortisol, when we're under stress, is a, a weaker form of a steroid, but it has the same basic mechanism of uh, gradually deteriorating our bones and causing bone loss. Wow. So, yeah, you mentioned adrenals there. And so I think a lot of people, a lot of like the colloquial, you know, like understanding out there is that I've got lack of energy because I'm burnt out because I've got adrenal fatigue. Could you speak about adrenal fatigue? Is it real or is it something we've created? Um, And what are some of the most effective ways that we can maybe not treat the adrenal fatigue or whatever the issue could be? Yeah, this is so funny in some ways. So this is like the advantage of just being old because I've been... You know, like, I don't even know what to say about it. But um, there, <laughs> in a long, long time ago, around the time when I was born, you know, they started to, you know, the alternative medical docs were like, hey, you know, there's a problem going on with the adrenals here. And someone just made up the name adrenal fatigue. I don't know. Adrenal fatigue, it kind of makes sense, right? It's not a real thing. It doesn't really exist. But, like, does heart attack exist? No, right, somebody well, just was bit. like, I'm having a myocardial infarction. Nobody says that. People are like, you know, somebody at some point in human history grabbed their heart and they're like, I'm having a heart attack. What's going on? I don't know. I'm getting attacked. So like that's a made up <laughs> word too, right? <laughs> so we do this all yeah. the time. That's funny. But when the younger doctors, and I've, I've been at lectures in the audience, I'm just laughing in the back. It's like watching your teenager kid, you know, drive for the first time or something. Um, and they just can't figure out where the brake is or whatever. But um. Like, okay, yeah, it's a made-up word. We all made it up. Like, get over yourself. Like, it that's not important. It worked in the 50s, 60s, well, the 60s, 70s, and 80s, and 90s. No, nobody made, you know, everyone understood what it meant. And that's what matters when you make up a term. Like, heart attack, everybody knows what it means. Your doctor might say, hey, stop smoking, you're going to have a heart attack. Um, but now the younger generation is like, this isn't real. And of course it's not real. It's something that we made up. It's not a medical condition. And especially... The endocrinology community, the medical endocrinology community, they hate the term because they there really are adrenal diseases that are real, like Cushing's and Addison's. And adrenal fatigue is not one of those things, right? It's in a whole separate category. It's like the difference between stubbing your toe and dropping dead of a heart attack. Okay? So we've got to acknowledge that. So the technical, more accurate term is probably HPA axis dysfunction, right? A hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis dysfunction. It really has nothing to do with your adrenal glands. It's your brain. It's your brain being under stress, telling the end organ, the adrenal glands, to make all this hormone. So technically, it's HPA axis dysfunction. And technically, it's really a brain problem, not an adrenal problem. So um, HPA axis dysfunction just doesn't sound that great. You know, and it's a little harder, but I, I started to use it now because people are kind of on the warpath about adrenal fatigue. So, um, but I don't think anyone can argue that HPA axis dysfunction exists because there's thousands, probably tens of thousands of scientific studies about it. So that's kind of the more technically accurate term. But then what's even more important is like, forget the names of stuff, like adrenal, whatever you want to call it, do the treatments that we've set up work or not? You know, number one, do people feel better? Number two, when you redo labs, do the labs look better? And so for, again, since the 80s, the generation of doctors that trained me have been doing these adrenal programs, this is called adrenal programs, to improve adrenal hormone output. And number one, they make the hormones 
hormone production better when you and I did a te- I did a study with the Mayo Clinic on this that we published 2016. It's real. You can do that. Well, you can make the internal production better. And number two, it makes people feel better. However, that's predicated on the reality that that's the main problem, and that's not always the case. And so if you look at like a breakdown of patients in my practice. I don't know. It's probably about a third, a third, a third. It's probably pretty close to that. Meaning that with people that have a primary complaint of fatigue, about a third of them, the adrenal corrections really work and that's enough. About a third, thyroid thyroid support in and of itself works and that's enough. And then another third, mitochondrial programs work. And then now this isn't working out. The math isn't going very well. Another third (laughs) are (laughs) are neurotransmitter related. So I, yeah. I didn't ever yeah, got yeah. too far in math. But maybe, yeah, those four. And they're, uh-huh. you know, they're probably, there's probably not one that I would say is more often than the others. However, if the mitochondria are the problem, the thyroid, adrenal, and brain programs don't work that well. Because, again, they're this foundational issue in the thyroid or adrenals or brain working properly. So if you miss the mitochondrial pro- problem, it's more serious and of a ramification for the patient than if you miss one of the other issues. That makes sense. Gotcha. Wow. That, that, was, be, the, that, that was the coolest ex- out. <laughs> no, <laughs> you know it, it shows it in your answer. It was such a thorough answer and it was cool to go on the journey as well. <laughs> well, we even if that. we ended up with a pie of 120%. <laughs> <laughs> your imagination that's not a bad thing <laughs> like an extra piece of pie <laughs> awesome so when you're talking about the adrenal uh adjustments are you are, do you are you thinking through adaptogens or what what do you mean when you say that no the way that i was trained was to use dhea and pregnenolone in these very very low dosages to reset the hpa axis and it works really well you have to keep the dosages really really low or it doesn't work very well yeah. Interesting. What? Because um, that's it's like a very niche approach um, that I haven't, at least I haven't heard a lot of. What um, evidence is there for, like, um, you know, for is there studies out there that have shown that that's an effective treatment strategy? Well, we did the Mayo Clinic study, right? That's the only one that I know of. But we took twenty five women and put them on these programs and showed that it worked. But the way the origin of all this was that when the first salivary adrenal testing lab came out. This is in the 80s. This is before I was around. Um, there was a group of doctors, a man named Dr. Timmons, Dr. Ilias, and they didn't do any formal or published research, but they spent, mm, I don't know, a good 10 years studying thousands of people and putting these people methodically on different programs, adaptogenic herbs, vitamin C, glandulars, different dosages of uh, DHEA and pregnenolone. And they even used hydrocortisone, their prescription form of cortisol. And they did testing and retesting just methodically on hundreds and hundreds of people, probably ended up being thousands of people over the whole time period. And they were just these naturopaths trying to figure out what works and doesn't work. And the only way that they could see, and they they, they just had one requirement, that the follow-up test in three or six months without any treatment during that, you know, for a few days before was better than the original test, right? They were looking for what would reset internal production. And they found these really low dosages of DHEA and pregnenolone were the only thing that did that. Now, that's not to say that's the only thing that made people feel better because adaptogenic herbs and glandulars make people feel better sometimes in a matter of a few days, you know, but they were more interested in the labs and how to get a normal lab value. Now, none of that was ever published. And when I came on the scene in like 1992, 
Timmons had already, they'd already done all this. And they were kind of on on the war path. They're like, this is what we're going to teach. This is what we know works. And so I got caught up in that in the early 90s and found the same thing that they did, you know, that if I put people on these programs and retested in six months, that internal production would come back, which means that you stop taking the products, right? That's the beauty of it. Low dose in a very short period of time, and then you're basically resetting this axis. Cool. So cool. It's very it never cool. caught on, though. It never caught on. There's only a really small group of people that ever did that program. Interesting. Yeah. Well, let's let's bring the conversation of mitochondria and fatigue together. I, I'm wondering if you could share a story with us of a of a client or patient that you had that came in for fatigue, and you discovered it was mitochondrial dysfunction and what you did about it. Okay. Well, I have a I have a good example. Uh, yeah, this, this is a good, a really good example because this has dragged on for a lot of years, so I can say a lot of things about her. Um, so. Let's call her Susie. That's not her real name. So she came in originally for fatigue. She was a cancer survivor, right, and had um, gone through chemotherapy, was previously extremely athletic and just wanted to be able to lose weight, keep the weight off, and get back on her bicycle and run and, you know, be physically fit. It's kind of like her main goal. And so we started working on the mitochondria and this was a pretty interesting case. So in the beginning – she didn't have enough of the mitochondria present, right? So we got the populations back. Now she's starting to be able to exercise properly again, which of course is going to lead to people, you know, to her losing weight and getting her energy back to the normal level. And then she started to get really competitive on the bicycle and started to over-exercise, which is not a bad thing, right? But as you guys probably know, if you exercise excessively, again, I'm not against excessive exercise, but if you exercise a lot, you're going to generate a lot of oxidative stress, and that's the exact problem that can damage mitochondria. So then we were kind of in this battle for a couple years between how much she could work out and train for her cycling competition and how much we needed to support her with antioxidants to keep the mitochondria working really well. So that's not a bad thing, though. It's a pretty good problem to have. And you can measure oxidative stress every six months or so. And the more physically active that she became, the more antioxidants she needed, and the more mitochondria that she built, the more physically active she was. And so you end up on this sort of teeter-totter. That happens a lot with um, endurance athletes, too, who may not have fatigue. They just need a lot of antioxidants to protect their mitochondria, right? More than they could get from eating a bunch of vegetables. Interesting. So... What were some of the unexpected, I guess, um, benefits of, you know, um, of her journey that she probably didn't maybe understand was a mitochondrial issue? Yeah, I, th- I think what, and she was in her 50s, right? I think what happens to a lot of people in their 40s and 50s is that they start to think that the mitochondrial dysfunction is just a normal part of aging. And they're a little tired. They're a little less physically active. They gain a little bit more weight than they think they should because their metabolism is slowing down. And they don't really see those as dysfunctions. They just see them as a natural consequence of getting older because they see it happening around them a lot, not realizing that it's actually the mitochondria you know, wearing out prematurely. So I think when we start to get mitochondria working again, oftentimes people will report things like that, like, I really wasn't thinking about it, but now my energy levels are back like when I was in my 20s. I just thought this was, you know, the way it was going to be. Or um, with like with Susie, you know, they start to exercise more just because they love to exercise and they cut back on exercise. 
not because they didn't want to exercise, but just because they didn't have that, you know, mitochondrial reserve, so to speak, to go out and do a really hard workout and feel good after it. And so I think we adapt, I guess that's an adaptation, right? We adapt to a lot of mitochondrial slowdowns, not realizing that it's not a normal part of aging. Mm. So does uh, chemotherapy impact mitochondria in a specific way? With yeah, chemotherapy would be, would be like the ultimate oxidative stress, right? On, on purpose, not that it's a bad thing, but they're trying to, um, you know, create, they're trying to kill th- parts of the human body, right? And to do that, they're using radiation or drugs that are going to be, uh, I guess the mitochondria are like innocent bystanders in that process, which may be necessary to get rid of tumors. But then at the end of the process, you know, you can rebuild the systems that are you know, designed to be, you know, the but the healthy parts of it can be rebuilt, right, without having to cause any damage. So with her, she you did the you did the coq ten, the magnesium, the uh, B vitamins. Okay, yeah, B, yeah. There's some really key B vitamins. Uh, carnitine is another important one. Uh, folate, B six, B twelve. Um, usually some antioxidants. Yeah. And sometimes amino acids, depending on the situation. Yeah. Sure. Really cool. And so she was able to regain uh, energy. Um, Susie, so how she Almost to the point where it was a problem, right? It's like almost like (laughs) an energy management situation or like, which is a good problem to have, isn't it? You know, I like like that. Um, Sometimes patients come and I fix them and I don't hear from them again, to be honest, you know. But there's some people like her, they just stick around year after year. And we find new problems. It's like, okay, now you're exercising a lot. This is make sure that we keep your mitochondria protected, you know. And it's a turns it more into a process of working with a person versus a single event that we're just correcting something. Mm-hmm. Oh, cool. I'm super curious because uh, we know that you're a very into meditation um, and you know alternative forms of spirituality, which it's always mm-hmm. intriguing talking to you about that. Is there a mind-body connection here with mitochondria? Is you know what would the impact be? Say, for example, someone started meditating. Is there a way of actually boosting your mitochondria through your mind or oh. some form of practice? Well, through remember, there's three things we didn't talk about. The third thing yet: oxygen, no breathing, which is your breath. Yeah, right. Oh, interesting. Yeah, true. Take us there, Doctor Dan. Touche. Yeah, yes. that is deep, right? So, so explain that. <laughs> Well, when you're, well, if you stop breathing, just try this for a second. Everyone can do this that's listening. Take a deep breath in, blow it all the way out and hold your breath out. Hold it out. And I don't know how long you can do that for, but it's not too long, right? So the reason why you can't do that for very long is that oxygen is going directly to the mitochondria. It's probably, it's really the main reason that we breathe. I mean, there's many reasons that we need oxygen, but that's the most vital one. And so either enhancing or decreasing your oxygen supply has profound effects on the mitochondria. So in a negative sense, what happens when people get chronic fatigue for whatever reason, is they're, they're sitting around a lot, right? And so they're not getting a lot of oxygen. They're slumping over, they're lying on the couch, they're not being very active, and so they might, the amount of oxygen coming in and out of their lungs is going to diminish. And that, in, in turn, will 
damage the mitochondria more, right? So there's a downward slope there. So very simple lifestyle fix is to do deep breathing exercises to oxygenate well so that you can mitochondria can come back. But the spiritual practice that I'm engaged in, in these Taoist practices, these people figured this stuff out like 5,000 years ago. I don't know. They probably didn't have the word mitochondria, but they knew exactly what's happening. And so they use breathing exercises to massively stimulate mitochondrial biogenesis. And they look at it, you know, it's like reverse aging, really, you know. You're, and this is what I was saying earlier, like there's billions of dollars being pumped into drug research now to try to figure out how to make mitochondria work forever because it's one of the main reasons why people die is the mitochondria just kind of peter out. And if you do breathing exercises, two ways, right? One is deep breathing in and out on a regular basis so you're getting plenty of oxygen. But then the other is what we just did, which is that you're holding your breath in or holding your breath out and not getting enough oxygen. That turns out to cause a surge of mitochondrial, what we call it, like stimulation. Um, and in fact, there are some people I would, there's this guy that approached me last year and they're doing this uh, for professional athletes where they put you on a bike or a treadmill and then they hook you up to an oxygen mask, except for they cut back your oxygen, right? They reduce, instead of giving you more, they cut it back and force you to do really high exertion in an effort to get the mitochondria to get like hyper stimulated, and you don't have to like get on a treadmill and use a mask. You can just hold your breath, right? <laughs> it's pretty easy. Just hold your breath and walk around, and you'll yeah. feel a pretty significant mitochondrial stimulation. I, I guess that's why the biohacking community falls in love with like oxygen therapy, et cetera, right? Is there some obviously connection there for increased performance? Yeah, and you can do it either way, right? Some people are trying to pump tons of oxygen in to get stimulation, and then – some people are trying to limit the oxygen while they're physically active. And that's what I do a lot in my meditation is I'm physically active but not breathing. Can you explain so what like that is? like training at altitude. And yeah, can you explain that? so someone doesn't have to go spend $10,000 on a fancy tent? Um, <laughs> can you explain how you can do that through meditation starting today? Yeah, so you could do walking meditation. And, you know... How complicated is that? I don't know. In Thailand, we walked down the path. Have you seen these meditation paths of the monasteries? They all have these meditation paths. You walk down the path, you turn, you walk back. You turn, you walk back. I spent three years doing that. Turn, you walk back. I mean, this is about as simple as it gets, right? That's a walking meditation. And the paths aren't even very long. I don't know. They're like 10 or 20 or 30 or 40 steps, whatever, depending on how much room you have in your hut. So you walk, 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 turn, walk back. So that would be one way of doing it. The other way... The Taoists are a little more creative. Maybe they didn't have as much space. I don't know. They're walking in circles, <laughs> you know. So just pick a point and just walk around it like you would, you know, not imagine the the width of a yoga mat or something. Not like you're going to walk a huge circle, but a little circle. And you can so do walking either somewhere and back or in a circle while you're holding your breath. So it's walking meditation, but you're not breathing. Right. So I'm still trying to imagine myself doing this in the – Holding my breath in, and Sarah sees me walking around a circle. Uh, don't you breathe out? And so then yeah, walk. yeah, and then you breathe. Yes. Yeah. So can you explain specifically how? I think we're overcomplicating well, yeah. it, but <laughs> yeah. So you can. I think the beginning level, the first ten years, usually you hold your breath in. That's the more standard. Take a deep breath in and hold it. That's a little more standard. But I just did the breathing out thing because it's faster. You feel it faster. Obviously, you feel the problem faster. <laughs> 
So what are, how do you feel afterwards? Like what's the, to put the carrot in front of our, our viewers? Um, what, how, how, how does it make you feel? Obviously walking up and down steps sounds very niche, but it's obviously this benefit that you found for yourself personally. What is it? What is that for you? Yeah. Well, first of all, it completely clears your mind of all thoughts because you're just hoping that you're going to survive, right? You're like, you're, it's when you're holding your breath, it's hard to be worrying about your grocery bill or, oh gosh, what's going to happen with COVID or whatever. Cause you're, you're engaged in a life or death struggle with your brain for the fact that you don't have enough oxygen. I mean, don't do this to the point where you hurt yourself. Obviously don't do this when you're driving or something, right? You do this in a peaceful spot. Um, or if there's a small child around, you probably shouldn't do this. But, um, so I think, first of all, it just clears your mind because it focuses you very intently on the fact that there's not enough oxygen in your system. So I think that's kind of good. It just sort of shuts your mind down. And then um, it has an energizing effect, I would say, a highly energizing effect overall. Well, you know what? It's not any different than if you go for um, – you know, like if you go for a, a hike for an hour or two? I mean, that's nice. But if you do like sprinting for 10 minutes, you get this rush kind of. It's kind of like that. Cool. You know? Yeah. Well, if you find me walking around in circles and oh, this very guy already loves pacing. So, so yeah, I know. You've, you've, you've created a pacing monster now. When I'm thinking I said <laughs> pacing. Now I'm just not going to breathe and see what happens. <laughs> I'll see you like conked out on the floor. Yeah. There's like, he's just in Taoist meditating. <laughs> yeah. <okay>. Uh, <laughs> awesome. Well, this has been a great chat dr kalish thank you so much for teaching us all about the mitochondria and really practical things we can do to optimize them but uh getting in touch with you i know that you do for any of our viewers i know that you dr kalish do uh telehealth appointments i know you you serve your clientele all, all over the world which is really cool uh so how would someone get in touch with you that wanted to work with you or your team yeah, so they can go to the website kalishwellness.com and we have a health coach you can do a free 15-minute call with and see if our clinic is a good fit. And if you're interested in testing your mitochondria or whatnot, it's pretty easy to do those labs. Sweet. So and good. I know that uh, we have a lot of viewers that are health professionals as well and I know that you do practitioner training. Uh, what sort of topics do you teach your practitioners uh, about? Yeah, so we have a variety of classes now. I have my one-year mentorship that I've been doing for 15 years, but we also have some really popular short classes, uh, master classes. There's one on the mitochondria and the brain that we do. Um, it's like $49, so it's an inexpensive way to just kind of learn about the work that I teach. And yeah, that's at kalishinstitute.com. If people are interested, they can reach us through there for the practitioners. Awesome. So good. We always love having you on, Dan, because it's I appreciate such an it. interesting I conversation. Always. I don't know if you mean to make us laugh, but you're really funny. <laughs> I, anyway. I really, I forgot the three thirds thing. That was a mistake. That wasn't planned out, but that was, I thought it was kind of funny because I yeah. couldn't get my math right. It, makes, it made sense. We were with you. <laughs> okay, you're with it. <laughs> I just imagined like an Excel graph just going too further in my head. So it just made far. sense to me. Yeah, it's a little bit too far. My circle just overlapped a bit. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much. Make sure you go check out uh, Dan's side. He's got a wealth of information there and I know a very thriving practice in times mm. like this. So um, wouldn't be a, like I couldn't recommend a better person to talk about energy and many other things that you specialize in. So thank you so much for your time. Appreciate it. Thank you, guys. 